Our Father in heaven, we are grateful that you have a plan for each of our lives. We've got plans. Uh, we have uh, written them down at times. We have uh, not only had a plan, we have gotten even more specific at times with certain goals and with certain uh, objectives. Some of those things uh, have been realized. A whole bunch of them, of our plans, uh, have not been realized. And uh, sometimes when we are on a streak of things that we thought were going to happen, not happening, we find ourselves uh, very, very disappointed. But we thank you, our Father, um, that as men, as Christian men, um, we are not exempt from disappointment. We are not exempt from hardship. The Christian life is a hard life, and it's a difficult life. But we thank you that the scriptures tell us that the mind of man plans his way, but the Lord directs his steps. Uh, we have made plans. Not all of our plans come to fruition. That is not true of you. Uh, you have a plan. It's usually different from our plan. Your plan for us usually includes things that we never have never thought of, have never occurred to us, things we never saw coming. Some of those things, when they first come into our lives, bring great joy. Others bring great sadness and disappointment. Ecclesiastes says, Consider the work of God, for who can straighten what he has been? In the day of prosperity, be glad, but in the day of adversity, consider. For God has made the one as well as the other. We, we, we inevitably learn more from the difficult times than we do from the good times. In fact, if we're not careful, the good times can be very slippery, can be very dangerous. We tend to learn the important lessons of life in the hard chapters of life. We tend to really mature in the hard chapters. And usually we don't include hard chapters in our plan. But because you're a good father, you know what we need. You know that in order to build spiritual muscle and to become mature, we have got to encounter hardship. It's purposeful. It's for a reason. There are times when we're mystified by it. We can't see the reason. We can't. Uh, we, we, we just can't assimilate it. But you know what you're doing in our lives. I would particularly pray tonight for the guys that are struggling with disappointment. I would pray for the guys that are on a rough stretch a highway, have had one disappointment after another after another. I would pray for them that they would consider what it is that you're up to and they would consider what it is that you're trying to teach them. We've got to have teachable hearts, our Father, if we're going to learn the lessons. Um, some of these hard experiences, we don't want to have to uh, go another semester on them. We want to learn the first time around. So I pray for all of us tonight that you'd give us teachable hearts and teachable spirits. 
Inevitably, there's somebody watching us. There's someone who is being influenced by us, and a lot of times we don't even know it. A younger man might be um, someone who's very quiet. They're watching us from a distance, but people are watching. When there's a man who is following you and has a sense of purpose, somebody's watching and somebody is thinking that that's a man I can follow. I pray, Lord, that you would help us to live circumspectly and wisely. And tonight, would you instruct us so that we can be the leaders we were intended to be. Thank you that you indeed are directing every step that we take. And that you are the God who causes all things to work together for good. In your way, in your wonderful way, you're able to do that. To those who love you and are called according to your purpose, you make it right in the end. We thank you for that. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, we are on a study right now that is based on one verse out of 1 Corinthians 16, verse 13. And if you take a look at that verse, there are four little bullet points in 1 Corinthians 16, 13, as Paul winds up that particular uh, letter to the church at Corinth. We are only focusing on, uh, on one of the uh, four bullet points The passage simply, very succinctly, says, uh, be on the alert, stand firm in the faith, act like men, be strong. We're taking number three, the one that says act like men. Uh, Why are we taking that? Uh, we We are taking the theme of acting like men over these next few weeks because we are living in a very unique time. We're living in a very unique age We are living in a time where so many young men in our culture are confused about what it means to be a man. There are a lot of reasons that they would be confused as to what it means to be a man. One of the main reasons that they are confused about what it means to be a man is that the further and further away that a nation, uh, that a family that an individual gets away from God and his truth, the more confused you become about who you are and about your purpose in life. I think a lot of us have a sense that our nation is in very, very deep trouble. And the reason we are in trouble, the scripture says how blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord. But when you get away from the Lord and you get away from his truth, and you get away from his person, and you get away from his book, that's not a good thing. We have said in here many times that uh, we are watching Romans 1.18 to the end of the chapter being played out in our times. In 1 Chronicles 12.32, it says that the men of Issachar were men who understood the times and knew what Israel should do. Uh... We are living in, we are living right now in this country in times that we have never seen before. Proverbs 11.9 says, Psalm 11.9 says, If the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? 
We're watching the foundations being dismantled before our very eyes. And it is happening at an at a absolutely breathtaking rate. And so there is a lot of concern. Uh, we're seeing concern for our country on just about every side. Wherever you look, you see concern. You see concern financially. You see concern uh, in terms of uh, uh, how people are getting along, different racial groups. You see concern for, uh, for families that are falling apart. You see concern for uh, the law and for the law being ignored and for bribery and all these things which the scriptures speak to. So we shouldn't be surprised that we have a generation, along with all this, we have a generation of young boys, young men who are coming up that are confused about what it means to be a man. As I said, I think, last week, when Paul spoke to the church at Corinth and said, act like men, this was a, the, the church at Corinth was in a very godless city. Corinth was a godless city. It was a seacoast town. It was like San Francisco. It was like New Orleans. It's a port city. Port cities are not known. Uh, they, are, they are rarely members of the Bible Belt. Right? It's anything goes. You got prostitutes. You got all kinds of stuff. You got immorality. You got, I mean, the guys are getting blitz, getting drunk. You got, you got everything going on. It's a seacoast city. Guys are on leave. Guys are in between ships. I mean, anything goes. That's the way Corinth was. The church at Corinth was in bad shape. But as bad as things were, Paul could say to them, he could say, act like men, and they knew what he was talking about. I'm not sure a large segment of our population would know what he means when he says act like men. Notice, notice that he says in 1 Corinthians 16, 13, he says act like men. Notice that he doesn't say act like boys. What we are witnessing is a new generation coming up, and I'll just make this real quick because we've covered this last couple of weeks and I don't want to prolong the point. We have a lot of young men. It's not all young men, but more than we've ever seen before, who instead of embracing responsibility seem to be running from responsibility. Now, uh, a young man that serves three or four tours for our country in a foreign land is not running from responsibility, and we thank God for young men like that. But we have a whole host of them that are only looking for the good life. We have a whole bunch of young guys coming up who are attempting to, and here's what we've said, they're attempting to prolong adolescence, they want to prolong the teenage years, and they want to put off manhood. And we have said, historically, there are five markers that take you from being a boy to being a man. There are five markers that take you from adolescence to being a man. The first one is you complete your education. Whatever it's going to be. If it's high school, get it done. If you dropped out, go get your GED. Or if it's college, get the sucker done. Not everybody needs to go to college these days. There's, you, you can learn a trade. You could learn a craft that's honorable, and you can do pretty well financially. Because not a lot of guys are in the trades. you got, you got to figure out who you are. It may not make a lot of sense for you to take out all kinds of student loans and be in debt up to the wazoo, 60, 70, 80 grand, and you're only going to make 40 grand if you go into that field. A lot of things have changed, haven't they? A whole bunch of things have changed. But get your education done. Secondly, uh, young men ought to move out of the house. 
I mean, if you're 48, it's about time to leave. <laughs> Here's number three. Get financially independent. Your mom and dad aren't supposed to be carrying you when you're in your 20s. I'm not saying families don't help each other out in crisis or in emergencies. But when you look at all the studies, and I've been looking at a lot of studies, never before have parents financially been helping their children, adult children, as long as what we're seeing today. So, you uh, finish your education, you uh, leave the house, you move out, you uh, become financially independent. Here's number four, you get married, you get married, you commit. The Christian position is you don't live with a woman, you marry a woman. That's the Christian position. And for you young single guys, you keep your hands off her until you marry her. That's what the Bible says. I know it's not what the culture says. You say, well, I'm a real man. Well, if you're a real man, you ought to be able to control your sexual drive by the power of the Holy Spirit. You know, as Tony Evans says, you just don't go, listen, listen, any dog can sleep around. Dogs can do that. You're not a dog, you're a man. I like how Tony, Tony puts things so subtly, don't you? <laughs> so you um, get to know her, find out what she's like, spend a lot of time talking. You ought to be looking for a wife, not a girlfriend. And the kind of woman you need is not loose sexually. She's going to be the mother of your kids, or should be. That's the kind of woman you need. So you keep your hands off her until you get married. Okay? Get married and have kids. You want stress? Have kids. <laughs> Psalm 127 says that children are a blessing from the Lord, and they are. They're a tremendous blessing. They're also a tremendous responsibility, which is why a lot of guys don't want to pull the trigger and get married and have kids. You see? Because it's too much responsibility. This passage doesn't say act like boys. It says act like men. When you're a boy, when you're a boy, discipline is important. Um, when you read the scriptures, when you read the scriptures, the scriptures are clear that it is the responsibility of a father to discipline his children. If you look at Ephesians 6.4, and we asked the question last week, what is the ideal way that a boy learns how to be a man? The ideal way, historically, in God's economy, God's plan for every civilization, ideally, is that a boy learns to become a man by watching his father. Now, what's happened in our culture is that, for all kinds of reasons, fathers have left Fathers get married and then they leave. Or fathers never get married, they just have sexual intercourse and they're not around and they don't commit. And then all kinds of problems begin to develop. And this has been going on now since the sexual revolution in the 60s and we're really starting to get tsunamied by this stuff. So when fathers are absent, when fathers are distant, when fathers aren't involved, how could a boy know how to be a man if he's not been around a father to show him how to be a man? So they get distorted views of what it means to be a man. You can go way off on the whole macho thing. And, all you know, you're just a street fighter and you're always in trouble and you're doing this and all that. Well, you know, there's a place for guys like that. It's called prison. Because you can't live like that. You can't function in society. And that's not how God intended men to live. 
And then the other way is, is that when, when boys are just raised in the presence of women and they're not around men, they get feminized, not effeminate, uh, not, not a propensity to homosexuality, that's not it at all. It's just that when you're always around woman, women and never around men, your tendency is going to be to relate in life as a woman does instead of as a man. Now that's easily reversible. All you need to do is get around strong, godly men that love Christ. And the other thing you do, and more importantly is, you get to know Jesus Christ, you see, in the scriptures. He, he is the absolute ideal of masculinity. You want to know what it is to be a man? You look at Christ. Ideally, what God wants is for, when you're a boy, you've got to learn discipline. Ideally, you learn it from your parents. Ideally, you learn it from your father. Ephesians 6.4. Let me give you a couple verses. <clears throat> How many of you guys are dads? Let me see your hands, please. Great. That's good. Got those pains in the chest. Isn't that good? All that responsibility, paying the bills, trying to make everything work. Ephesians 6.4. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Okay? So, uh, uh, fathers are, are to raise their children. There are a lot of principles in here, but I just want to show you. When, do you know that up until about the 1880s, all of the parenting books were written not to mothers, but to fathers? Because it was understood that it was the father's responsibility for the oversight and instruction and discipline of his children. That shifted, and it went to the women. So what do we have here? Fathers, don't provoke your children to anger, uh, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. When you discipline a child, you don't, you don't abuse a child, you discipline a child. You're try, when you discipline, you're instructing. You're, you're not out of control, you're under control. You are trying to teach, you are trying to train, you are trying to instruct. You're not going off, you're not venting. You're not taking uh, your anger from a situation at work and pouring it out on a kid. That's not what men do. That's not what fathers should do. All right? By the way, if your father did that to you, you've got issues, and what happened? He, he provoked you to anger. If you've got anger issues with your father, it's because this verse wasn't followed. Right? Yeah. Look at uh, Colossians 3. Ephesians, Philippians Colossians. The same principle, same exact principle. And in the context here, both in Ephesians and in Colossians, he's talking about family relationships. I just pulled the one out on fathering. But he has, uh, he has wives, he's got husbands, he's got fathers. Same thing here. In 20, he's talking about children. In 21, he says, fathers, don't exasperate your children so that they won't lose heart. You don't want to write a kid so that they just lose heart. They can never do anything right. That's not a good father. Our father in heaven doesn't do that to us. It's a fine line. We need the wisdom of God in disciplining our, our sons and disciplining our daughters. But fathers are to discipline. A key thing in becoming a man is the issue of discipline. Here's the principle. Fathers are to discipline their sons. 
but a man is to discipline himself. Let's say that one more time. A father is to discipline a son and to train him. Okay? A father is to discipline his son, but a man is to discipline himself. That's how life works. And that's a good marker. You see, we have young guys that are attempting to put off responsibility because they don't want to discipline themselves to be responsible. You got to learn discipline from the time you're born. You're always in process of learning. It is, a it is a process from going to immaturity to maturity. So I was in my junior year. I, it's football season, doing two-a-days. You guys remember two-a-days? You, you go out in the morning, get the crud knocked out of you. Uh, you go get a hamburger, have a Coke. You go home for a couple hours, and you go back at 4 o'clock, and you get the crud knocked out of you all over again. It's a wonderful American institution. It's called two-a-days. I remember my junior year, about the third day of two days, I'm coming home from morning practice. I am so, the third day, you're so sore, you can hardly move. I, I had my little VW bug, 64 bug. I pull up in the driveway. I, can, I am so sore, I can hardly get out. I walk up to the front door. We had two steps as I... I'm going up the steps, my mom opens the door. And she said, Steve, I'm so glad you're here. I've got some ladies coming over this afternoon. I need you to sweep out the garage. <laughs> now that still doesn't make sense to me. <laughs> because I don't think they were going to have coffee in the garage. <laughs> but that's all right, it made sense to my mom. And I'm sure there's more to it than I got. But I, I said, Mom, i got to tell you something. I am so sore. I am so beat up. I can hardly move. I, I, I just need about 15 minutes to just stretch out. She said, no, I need you to do it now. I said, Mom, I'm not kidding you. I can hardly get up these stairs. I can hardly get out of the car. I just need to go. She said, I want you to do it now. And I said, you know, Mom, I'm not doing it now. I'm sorry, but I'm not. Now, I want to tell you a little context. The previous 12 months, I'd grown nine inches in 12 months. I was looking down on my mom. Before, a year ago, I was looking up to her. Now I'm looking down. And I'm kind of feeling my oats a little bit. And I wasn't disrespectful. I mean, I sort of was, but I said it nicely. I said, Mom, I'm just not going to do it right now. I'll do it. I just, yeah, I'm, I'll do it in 15 or 20 minutes, but I'm not doing it right now. And I walk in. I walk right by her, and I went in the family room, and I just stretched on the floor. And I'm just, I'm not moving. I'm just, I'm just laying there. I'm just, I'm just laying there. And I, and I don't know, 15, 20 minutes go by. I heard a very unusual sound but what is that it was my dad's car pulling in the driveway about 1 p.m. I don't remember hearing that before I immediately jumped to my feet without any pain whatsoever we weren't Catholic but I began to make the sign of the cross I knew I was in trouble. My dad walked in. My dad said, have a seat, Steve. I sat down. My dad down, sat down next to me. And my dad looked at me and he goes, you know, Steve, I want you to have a happy life. That's what he said. I'm quoting him. He said, I want you to have a happy life. But if you ever talk to your mother like that again, I'll pull you off that football team so fast it'll make your head spin. 
And I knew he'd do it. Now, my dad loved football. My dad was all skating football and basketball. Went to college on a full ride, came out of World War II, and was offered a contract to play for the Pittsburgh Steelers in 46, which he turned down, of course, because you can't support a family playing pro ball. <laughs> Not in 46, you couldn't. Yeah, you had to be a milkman on the side in 46. So my dad loved sports, so you know what? My dad loved me more than sports, and he loved my mom more than sports, and he loved Christ more than sports, and my dad knew he had a job to turn me from a boy into a man. And he wasn't putting up with that. He said, I want you to have a happy life. You ever do that again? I'm going to pull you off that team. And I'm going to tell you something. He would have pulled me off the team. I mean, I had no, I had no doubt he'd pull me off that football team for the whole season to teach me a lesson. He would have done it. He said, I want to tell you something, Steve. This isn't between you and your mother. It's between you and me. You got that? <laughs> She's not in this. It's you and me. And he went on for another, I don't know, 15, 20 minutes. <laughs> True story. True story. Okay? Fast forward that about, I don't know, 25 years? 20 years. Uh, my son John grows about 9 inches in 12 months. He's in high school. I go out to do a conference. I came back. How'd it go? Well, I had a little problem with John. Disrespect. You know, I talked to John. Oh, Dad, I'm really sorry. Okay, okay. We had this happen. We had this happen twice. I'm going off on a trip. And I said, all right. I talked. I said, John, I'm going to tell you something. This happens when I'm gone. I don't want this happening again. Okay? He said, all right, Dad, I'm really sorry. I, I am sorry. I just... I said, okay. So I go to San Jose, and I come back. I walk in, it's about midnight. I, I walked in, Mary's in bed reading. I said, hey, how'd it go? And she said, fine. I said, how'd John do? She went, eh. I said, what happened? And she told me. So I went into his bedroom, I got him up, because I knew he was awake. <laughs> and I said, come on. And we went into my office, and we sat down, and I looked at him, and I said, you know, John, I want you to have a happy life. <laughs> True story. But I'm going to tell you something. This happens again. I'm pulling you off that basketball team for the whole season. This isn't between you and your mother, John. This is between you and me. I'll tell you guys, it was all I could do to keep from cracking up. <laughs> now, what's funny, in about 20 years, John's going to be sitting down with his boy. I want you to have a happy life. It's just what we do in our family. Um, see, boys need their fathers to discipline them. But one of the markers of becoming a man is that you don't have someone else discipline you. You discipline yourself. 1 Timothy chapter 4. Let's turn over there, please. This is, this, see, this is what's critical with the young generation. We've got this whole thing coming with a lot of young guys, and they really don't want to assume responsibility. Again, not all of them, thank the Lord for that, but quite a wave of them. The, the, issue, the issue in manhood is self-discipline. It's always the issue if you're going to become mature. You must learn to master yourself. First Timothy chapter 4 
Paul says to Timothy, who is a young pastor, he says this. He says, on the other hand, discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness. For bodily discipline is only uh, of little profit, but godliness is profitable for all things since it holds promise. Now watch this. This is really something. Godliness is profitable for all things since it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. This is not the only life you're going to live. There is a life of eternity. It's not on the clouds playing a harp. Whoever came up with that nonsense. But you're going to live forever. You will never go out of existence. You will never die, the Bible says. So discipline to become, to become a man who is a follower of Christ, to become a man who is responsible. By the way, Jesus had his men around him. They were called disciples. Do you know that the word disciple and the word discipline come from the same root? So what does this say to a young pastor, to a young guy back in 4-7? Discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness. There's a point where a young man has to become self-disciplined. Go down to uh, uh, verse 11. He says to young Timothy, the young pastor, he says, prescribe and teach these things. And then he says this in 12. Let no one look down on your youthfulness. You know, we're in Texas. After the Civil War... Guys are coming home. It was a tough time. You got reconstruction going on. Um, they're trying to make a living. And you, you had all, and, and this is when the great cattle drive started, started happening. Do you know you had guys who were 17, 18 years old? They would make a gather of, of 1,000, of 1,200, of 1,400, of 1,500 cattle, and they'd drive those suckers north. 16, 17, 18 years old. And their mommies weren't waking them up in the morning with hot chocolate. You know what I'm saying? Time to be a man. They, they had, that's just how it was. There was no adolescence. You just got out there and it's time to play with the big boy. So what does that mean? You discipline yourself. You get up when you don't want to get up. You do what you don't want to do. But you don't live on how you feel. You live what's right. Live on what's right. And you live on what's true. That comes from the Bible. He says, let no one look down on youthfulness, but rather in speech and conduct in love, faith and purity, show yourself an example of those who believe. Young men should live their lives in such a way that others look at them and say, I want to be like that guy. That is possible. He says in verse 15, he says, take pains with these things, be absorbed in them so that your progress may, will be evident to all. Verse 16, pay close attention to yourself and to your teaching. Persevere in these things. This isn't, a, this isn't an ice cream social. This is life. We need men, we need young men to become men. We need young men to get responsible. We don't need young men to be passive. We need you to step up. I'm just having a quiet moment here. Because, see, I can see the clock and you can't. Let's go over to 1 Corinthians 9. Once again, it's about discipline. Discipline is critical.
Look at uh, 1 Corinthians 9, verse 24. Paul says, Do you not know that those who run in a race all run, but only one receives the prize? Run in such a way that you may win. Everyone who competes in the games exercises self-control in all things. They then do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. Therefore, I run in such a way as not without aim. I box in such a way as not beating the air, but I discipline my body and I make it my slave so that after I have preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified. The best way, the best way to teach somebody leadership is to model leadership. They ought to be able to watch your life and figure it out. That's how it's supposed to work. What does it mean to be a man? The young men who are under your charge, the young men who are under your care, should be able to look at our lives and figure out, oh, that's what it means to be a man. But when men are removed, when men are irresponsible, when men are passive, when men are out flaking around, not being men, not being where they're supposed to be, you got a problem because then those young guys don't have anybody to look to, and then you find ourselves in a confusion. Well, what does it mean to be a man? Second Thessalonians. As a kid, I called it Second Ministronians. That's how I remembered it. Just a little tip, a little Bible study tip for you there. Second Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 6. Now, I'll tell you what, Paul does not mess around. Let me tell you something. You want balanced masculinity? Balanced. You want balanced masculinity. Masculinity that is purposeful. Masculinity that's not out of control. Masculinity that's out of control is not masculinity. It's dangerous. You see? Watch what Paul, watch how Paul just comes Right, he's just going to throw one fastball after another in these next few verses, and he's going to throw them high, and he's going to throw them inside. Watch this. First, uh, where am I? Second Thessalonians three, yeah, six. Now we command you, brethren, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from every brother who leads an unruly life, not according to the tradition which you receive from us. If there's some guy who's living in the wrong way, that's not the guy you want to be with. Okay? Bad company, the Bible says bad company corrupts good morals. My son John was telling me about, he was watching a documentary the other day about a guy that's on death row. Why was he on death row? The guy basically says, I chose wrong friends. And I was in the wrong place at the wrong time with these guys. And yeah, I'd agreed to rob the store, but I was in the back and I didn't know they were going to shoot the cop. And they're all on death row. That was his whole thing. That was his whole thing. I chose the wrong friends. Hmm. We looked at last week in the book of Proverbs, chapter 1. The first thing a father says to a son in Proverbs is you be careful about the guys you hang out with. Bad company corrupts good morals. Verse 7. For you yourselves know how you ought to follow our example. There it is again. Paul's not saying, yeah, I think you guys ought to do this. Paul's saying, you know what? Do what I do. In another section of Scripture, Paul says, you follow me as I follow Christ. To be a Christian is to be a Christ follower. Jesus 
is God. Jesus is the perfect one. We follow him. Okay. For you yourselves know how you ought to follow our example, because we did not act in an undisciplined manner among you, nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it. When you see young guys that are healthy, you see young guys that are strong, and they're sitting on their tails watching TV and playing video games, and they're not working, that's not right. And somebody ought to pull the plug on them financially instead of handing them out little checks. And I say that in Christian love. And I do say it in Christian love. Those guys usually uh, are angry. You know why they're angry? They, they're wasting their lives. They're not productive. They're not doing what they're supposed to do. They're wasting their lives. Paul, uh, uh, <laughs> Nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it. He's not, looking out for, he's not looking for a handout, is he? But with labor and hardship, watch this. Labor and hardship, we kept working night and day so that we would not be a burden to any of you. That's what men do. Men work, they get the job done because they're responsible. I know this is kind of foreign. To, I, I don't, hope I'm not hurting anybody's self-esteem here. I'm, I'm sorry. But this is what men do. Sometimes, in order to, to make it happen, you work a job and you work another job. Sometimes you work three jobs. You do what you got to do. Verse 10. For even when we were with you, we used to give you this order. If anyone is not willing to work, then he is not to eat either. Oh, dear Lord, help us. How harsh. No, it's the way it is. You don't want to work? You're not eating. Try that for a day or two. And then watch the guy pick up a shovel and go to work. You see? Oh, that's... But see, they have to be disciplined. They have to be disciplined. They've got to feel the consequences of their actions. Okay. Verse 11. We hear that some among you are leading an undisciplined life, doing no work at all, but acting like busybodies. Now such persons we command and exhort in Lord Jesus to work in quiet fashion, eat their own bread. But as for you, brethren, do not grow weary of doing good. Do what's right. Work. Do your job. Don't be looking for a handout. Don't be. Be responsible. Be disciplined. A lot of people in this country would have a real hard, would have a lot of difficulty with this. Would they not? Flip over to, you guys still with me? Are you? I'd appreciate your vote in November. <laughs> I'm not running for anything, but what the heck, huh? Uh, where am I? Go to Genesis 25. The classic case of a young man who is full of vigor and full of strength, lacking purpose and lacking discipline and living off of his impulses and for immediate gratification is a guy by the name of Esau. Genesis chapter 25, verse 27. You got Abraham, you got Isaac. Isaac had two twin boys. The older boy was Esau, the youngest boy was Jacob. And uh, these brothers, these are interesting guys. They had a little thing going on between them. I'm having trouble here getting to the passage. But in Genesis 25, you guys know about Esau. This is kind of classic. Uh, in 25, 
27. When the boys grew up, Esau became a skillful hunter, a man of the field, but Jacob was a peaceful man. He was a quiet guy living in the tents. Uh, Isaac, the dad, loved Esau because he had a taste for game, but Rebekah, the mom, loved Jacob. When Jacob had cooked stew, red beans and rice or something, I don't know what he cooked. Well, get this. When Jacob cooked stew, Esau came in from the field and he was famished. He was starving. Sucker was hungry. Okay? And Esau said to Jacob, hey, let me have a swallow of that red stuff there, for I am famished. Therefore, his name was called Edom, because he was, he was red, red hair, red, you know, hairy guy. Uh, 31. Jacob said, no, this is interesting. Jacob said, sell me your birthright. See, you're the firstborn. You're going to get at least two-thirds of everything that dad has. And let me tell you something, their dad was wealthy. How do you know their dad was wealthy? Because their dad was the son of Abraham, and Abraham was wealthy. And he passed it on to his son, and now they got twins. But the older boy, it's called the, it's called the uh, primogenitor, that the vast majority of the wealth goes to the firstborn son. He'll get at least two-thirds. The other boy will get a third. Okay? So Esau is in line. He's the firstborn. He's the primogenitor. He's going to get at least two-thirds, if not the whole thing. I'm famished. I'm starving. Oh, man, what's that stuff you're cooking up there? And the second brother, the younger brother, says, uh, he says, yeah, I'll give you some, but some of your birthright. Watch this. Esau said, behold, I'm about to die. So of what use is the birthright to me? Jacob said, swear to me. So he swore to him, sold his birthright to Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau bread and lentil stew, and he ate and drank and went on his way. Thus Esau despised his birthright. That is stupid. <laughs> is it not? He was young. He was impulsive. He didn't think it through. Physically strong but just concerned about fulfilling his physical appetites. That's why young men need to be channeled and taught masculinity by older men. That's why Paul, and by the way, see, Paul said, Paul didn't say, yeah, uh, don't do that, don't do that, don't do that. Paul said, do what I do. You see, hey, watch me. I don't do that stuff. I'm not telling you to do it, and then I do it. You watch me. See, I don't do that. I don't waste my time with that. Don't you waste your time with it. Am I making sense? The older men are to teach the younger men. And, and, and I don't mean to be pedantic and keep milking this cow, but, but what's this whole purpose? Why are we going through this? Paul says at the end of Corinthians, act like men. We got a crisis. We got generation coming up. They're not sure how to act like men. Okay. Uh, how many of you guys have daughters still living at home? Okay. How many of you guys have granddaughters? If you can remember. <laughs> you got some granddaughters? Good. Okay. Now, I just found out last week I'm going to have a granddaughter. Yeah. Yeah. That's pretty neat, isn't it? How many grandkids do you have, Ron? <clears throat> two and one on the way in May. All right, good. You got two and one on the way. Yes. Yeah. So I got a little granddaughter coming. Now I will tell you something about this little granddaughter. I've been praying for her since her mother was born. And I'm not exaggerating. Because when 
Rachel was born, I figured one day Rachel would be married and have kids. So I thought, well, when I pray for Rachel, why don't I pray for Rachel's kids? So I, I heard a story one time that James Dobson's great-grandfather prayed for the next three generations. So I, you know, I thought, well, okay, that's great. I'll do it. So I've been praying for this little baby that Rachel's carrying. I've been praying for her for 32 years. Now, that little girl, who's not born yet, um, one day she's going to be of marriageable age. She's going to need a fine, young, responsible man to marry and have children with and raise those children in the discipline and nurture of the Lord. Now, where's that young man going to come from? He's going to come from somebody's home. Maybe your grandson's home. Maybe, I don't know. So you better, you, hey, you get on it, man. <laughs> you, 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 you see, I, I'm kind of messing around, but you see how this works? How we handle our kids has implications long term. You see? That, that little granddaughter is going to need a godly man. Where do godly men come from? They come out of godly homes with strong fathers who teach them, here's how you be a man. You see? Or if they didn't have a father like that, they get around strong Christian men who will take an interest in them and say, let me show you how it is, man. You see? Yeah. I'm laughing. I mean, I'm smiling because... The way that Rachel got, she, I got to be careful what I say. She, she wouldn't want me saying a lot of stuff, but she doesn't get the CDs. How would she know? Uh, I, I'm, I'm very careful. Let me just say this. But you know, it was interesting. The guy she married, her brother John, spotted. John spotted him. He came home one day, and he was where they go to church, he, 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 we were talking one day, he says, you know, Dad, I've been in this, uh, this uh, study group for guys, and the guy leading it, I've been watching him. I've been in there six months, and I'm watching this guy. I said, he ought to meet Rachel. I said, yeah, why? And he started telling me about it. I said, that's pretty good. I said, send him over. <laughs> no, I didn't say that. <laughs> I didn't fill out an application. I didn't say that. I said, that's really interesting. Now, what, what we found out later is that that whole time John was thinking about him, he had spotted Rachel, and he was interested in Rachel. And he was kind of just circling the airport. And then right after that, he landed the plane, and then all of a sudden, you know. So this guy suddenly, and, you know, and she dated other guys, but, but I could, and suddenly, you know, this is, this is going on for a while, and I'm thinking, hmm. I like this guy. And so one day I said, hey, uh, hey, Court, uh, you interested in grabbing breakfast some, some, sometime? He goes, oh, yeah, I'd like that. I said, well, let's do it. So we did it. He was getting annoyed. And then a little later on, you know. See, here's what I'm saying. In this day and age, if you got a daughter and you're the father or your grandfather, you don't want to... Let me, let me tell you what you want to do. In an appropriate way, you want to be aware of what's going on and play a role in the process. 
in an appropriate way that honors her. Not weird, not strange, not embarrassing to her, but in a way that is uh, beneficial. Are you guys getting this? You know what I'm talking about? No big deal, no pressure. Hey, hey, you ever, you ever eat breakfast? Yeah, let me buy you breakfast, man. Okay, good. What are you, you going to do? Go study the Book of Romans? No, you're just going to eat breakfast. Talk to the guy. You see? Do you do it every week? Well, maybe, maybe not. Just, just, just see. Just sort it out. But, but you just ask the Lord to lead and use wisdom. And if this thing is going somewhere, then you want to stay connected. And you can have an influence. You can have a godly influence. And you get talking and, and you know, and, and at some point you get honest and, well, I'm a little concerned about this, you know. Well, shoot, man, I remember being concerned about that. I'm not sure I could be a dad. Well, I remember that. Yeah, I'm like, man, that's kind of overwhelming. Yeah, I, man, I remember feeling that way. Hey, you know, you just kind of dive in the deep end. I mean, what the heck, man? Start dog paddling, you know? Yeah, you can do that. You'd be good at it. You know what? You'd be a good dad. I'll tell you why you'd be a good dad. I've seen two things in you with her. And let me tell you, if, you do the, if you're doing those two things with her, you're going to be a great dad. Tell these guys. Encourage their hearts. Maybe no one's ever said that to them. I don't know. You say it to them. Don't write them unless they're not teachable and they're difficult. Then what you want to do is really get um, available. And be a present. Oh, I'm dead serious. If they could bring harm to your daughter and you're sensing that, you need to be a presence and a protector. I think there's a guy here. I can't see him, but I think he's here. And he has a daughter who's married. But I remember when she was seeing another guy. And I know about three guys like this, so you don't know who I'm talking about. But... It, as soon as she started going out with this guy, because of the character of this young man, it began to affect their daughter, and she began to act differently, and it began almost immediately to put a wedge in the family, and nobody in the family felt good about it, and that's a very close family. All three of them were, and are. And I'm thinking of one dad in particular who just did the breakfast thing. Hey, you know, I'd like to get to know you. Eat breakfast, let me buy you breakfast. And what happened is he just started meeting with this guy. And see... Some of these guys are controlling and they got an agenda, but you bring the dad in just having breakfast and suddenly you got a male presence. And you just read it and ask God to give you wisdom and you do what you need to do. Making any sense? So you don't want to get passive there, do you? You want to be wise, but you want to be a father and you want to be a man. You're a protector. Sometimes daughters can't see things that dads can see. Right? What I'm saying is, help train your daughter, your granddaughter, in an appropriate way. You may play a role in helping to develop these young guys, encourage them in their masculinity and in their responsibility, and you can coach them. Am I making sense? Yeah, but don't get passive. And you need the wisdom of God. You don't want to go rushing in there with a bulldozer. You guys are getting this, aren't you? You're getting it. Good. All right. I did it perfectly. <laughs> you just say, Lord. And listen, you say, well, how do I do that? I don't know. 
How the heck would I know how to do it? You just, but I know I'm supposed to do it. So Lord, help me here. I want to be wise and I just want to, I want to be available. Is this making any sense? This is what men do. Okay. You buy the kid breakfast. He'll, he'll go anywhere with you. You buy him food. I mean, hey, somebody buys me some, I'll go with them. All right. Let, let me do this. Kent um, Hughes. I feel like I'm boring you guys. You, are you there with me? Kent Hughes did a book about 25 years ago called The Disciplines of a Godly Man. Excellent book. Excellent. Well, he's just come out with a book with him and his son called Disciplines of a Godly Young Man. This is good stuff. I just got it this week. He starts off, the whole crux of his book, interestingly enough, is he's talking about, you know, a lot of guys are seeing this young generation thing and they're trying to address it. So right out of the blocks, he and his son, you know what they deal with? They deal with discipline. Discipline. Discipline, okay. All right, let me read you a section, okay, that kind of brings it right where we are today and what we're dealing with. Here's a section called Why the Disciplines. You guys don't mind if I read to you, do you? Okay. So if you're texting, don't text. I want you to hear this, okay? That's important. And don't think I don't know that you're, if you're texting or not, because I, I can see that thumb action down there. You know, you're giving yourself away, so, Okay. Listen to this. He says, why the disciplines? Understanding this, we now get down to the reason for the book, which is that in today's world and church, young Christian men who are disciplined are the exception, not the rule. And he's right. Why is this? The answer is that the popular, politically correct culture of the new millennium suppresses manliness, and especially the manliness and leadership of young men who attempt to follow Christ. The reasons are several, and together they are daunting. Here's the first reason that it is very difficult for young men to be masculine and manly and show leadership in this culture. Here's the first one, feminism. Okay? He says, during the 70s, the 1970s, certain feminist strategists initiated the so-called Girlhood Project. Have you ever heard of the Girlhood Project? It was a plan and it was purposeful. It's been incredibly successful. The Girlhood Project, with the intent of effectively blurring and even erasing the distinction between males and females. According to author and social critic Barbara DeVoe Whitehead, feminists called for a new sexual standard based on traditional boyhood. Now follow this. This is fascinating. It's tragic, but fascinating. In their plays and pursuits, little girls were to be made more like boys. Among cultural elites, a traditional feminine daughter became a mild social embarrassment, while a feisty tomboy daughter became a source of pride. The copy-the-boys approach was applied to all of life, to sexuality, to speech, and even to body type with the tomboy ideal of a wiry athletic body. Along with this, naturally active and competitive boys were penalized for their boyish behavior, while girls were lauded for ruggedness and athletic prowess. I grew up, I saw this, and so have you. Some of you guys my age. The effect today is a culture that celebrates a female body that is sculpted by exercise and diet to look like that of a man and by convention to talk like a man and act like a man. So with this process, women who God desires that they be feminine, they become masculinized. They're not saying that, I'm saying that. They're saying it, but not with those terms. Amid this cultural inversion, a rugged, assertive, and disciplined young man is deemed a threat. 
If a guy lifts his head to take charge in a mixed gender situation, he is labeled as a chauvinist or a sexist pig. So there is a generation of younger men who have been neutered and neutralized as to their natural, their natural ruggedness and willingness to undergo the disciplines that will turn them into real men. And Christian young men are particularly susceptible to being cowed by the culture because discipline for godliness demands a particular toughness and rugged individualism in a castrating, God-denying culture. So if you're a young, single guy, and I know young, single guys who work with a lot of guys, they're in the military, they're in whatever they're doing, and hey, are you a virgin? Yeah, I'm a virgin. Think Tim Tebow. Oh, what's wrong with you? Nothing. Oh yeah, there's all kinds of things wrong with you. You, you haven't had a woman yet? What the heck's wrong with you? Well, I'm a man who's under control. Well, we can't have that. You need to be out there sleeping around. That's what real men do. Oh yeah, just go and impregnate as many women as you can, because we got abortion, so it doesn't matter. You just go ahead and kill the child. That's where we are. There's, a, there's another one that has contributed to where we are. Entertainment. The second culprit in the neutralizing of young men is the addiction to entertainment. A face front lit by the glow of a luminous screen is a study in passivity. Fleeting images intermingled with the thousand commercials and banner ads of an average week's viewing instill passiveness. There is no time for engagement or reflection, much less action. The viewer becomes a passive, munching, sipping drone. According to Webster's, a drone is a male bee that has no sting and gathers no honey. That is profound. <laughs> Isn't it? Basically, you got guys that are just voyeurs. They don't do, they watch. They don't contribute, they take. There's a video out, it's called The Demise of Guys. I got this sheet here somewhere. What the heck? I don't know. Anyway, you'll see the guy if you watch it. I pulled, I pulled two things off it. By the age of 21, boys have spent 10,000 hours playing video games. Two-thirds of that time is in isolation. You know what that means? They don't know how to relate to other people. They don't know how to carry on a conversation. They're not socially aware. They're not socially adept. They can't read individuals. They're, they're, they're self-consumed. All right, here's number two. Um, the, average boy, the average boy watches 50 pornography clips a week. That's the average boy. That means some are watching 100. That's why I said earlier, if there's, you have a daughter and there's a young man who's interested, you ought to be interested in an appropriate way. If a young man knows a father is there, it tends to change the dynamic, doesn't it? The name of the book? The books that I've written? Oh, yeah, I don't normally give those out. 
I, I just mentioned my books. You, you've not been here before, have you? This is your first time. Yeah, I just push my own stuff, man. That's how I do it here. Uh, the book is called, it's an excellent book. Anything Kent Hughes writes, I buy. Seriously. It's, this one is called The Disciplines of a Godly Young Man. And then the first one is Disciplines of a Godly Man. They're both, they're both wonderful. I'm about halfway through this one. Um, so guys, once again, here's what I want to say. This is kind of, this, this, to, to think about all this stuff and to ponder it is somewhat overwhelming. It, I mean, it can be somewhat depressing. Once, I, 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 once again, if you weren't depressed when you walked in here, allow me to help you tonight. You say, man, this is overwhelming. Yeah, it is, but you know what? One man can make a difference. Can he? This is why I was saying last week, and I'm going to continue to say it through this series, be on the lookout. In your sphere of influence, there may be a younger man that the Lord brings into your life. Um, don't be surprised by this. Uh, if uh, you could have a profound... In, in Titus, the older men are to teach the what? Younger men. Uh, and here's what we're talking about doing here. Um, there are three terms that have kind of been lost. But for hundreds of years, everyone knew the terms. First term is apprentice. The second term is journeyman. The third term is craftsman. Dean King summarizes it. He says, it was once the custom in Germany that a young craftsman who had apprenticed for four years. What does it mean to apprentice? Well... That means he was with an older man learning a trade. Here's how you do this. Here's how you farm. Here's how you, um, here's how you blacksmith. So you got a younger guy apprenticed to an older guy who is instructing him and coaching him. Uh, yeah, you probably don't do, okay, okay, that's all right. Don't worry about it. You made a mistake. That's all right. But next time, do this. Try this instead of that. Oh, okay. See? All right. It was once a custom in Germany that a young craftsman who had apprenticed for four years under an older man, usually with his father, took to the road to work for and learn from other masters at his craft. He was then called a journeyman. Makes sense. He's on a journey. And he carried a wandering book, which the masters inscribed with testimonials and the dates of his service. Before moving on to a new master to serve and learn in another town, the journeyman also required, would acquire the signatures of the town mayor and police chief and recorded the travel time to his next destination to prove that he was diligent. There are no vacations. No sabbaticals. Oh, I finished here, and then it took me two days to get here. Okay, good. Let me see your book. Good. It's called accountability. It's called explaining your actions. After several years on the road, the successful craftsman, because you see now he's a craftsman. He started as an apprentice. Then he went to a journeyman. Now he's a what? He's a craftsman. Okay. 
After several years on the road, the successful craftsman returned home or to another town where his services were needed and became the master in his own right. First an apprentice, then a journeyman. It was a slow process. It was a methodical process. And it took lots of time. So don't expect this to be a microwave thing. Was it a microwave thing with you? No. Well, then cut them some slack. And be patient. Say, well, Christ may return this week. Well, then our problems are solved. <laughs> right? But what if he doesn't? I got one more piece of paper. And with this, I close. And everybody went wild. There's a certain type of superior bamboo that is grown in Malaysia. A very rare strain. It takes great wisdom and it takes great patience to cultivate it. Here's how you do it. In the first year, you plant the seed, you water, and you fertilize. And after a year, absolutely nothing happens. In the second year, you continue to carefully water and fertilize. Nothing visible happens in the second year either. In the third year, water and fertilize are even more necessary, yet once again, nothing happens. There is absolutely no visible indication that your three years of work are even close to being successful. The fourth year comes around, and water and fertilizer must still be applied in the right amounts and at the right time, but you guessed it, once again, Nothing happens. In the fifth year, you again diligently water and fertilize, and the bamboo grows 90 feet in 30 days. I've seen, that's, yeah, that's three feet a day. Have you ever seen that happen with a young man? Have you ever seen a young man who is you haven't seen for two or three months and then suddenly you see him, but something significant happened in his life and 90 days later, he's, he's a man. Have you ever seen it? I've seen it. And in Italy, there is much frustration and shaking of the head and oh my gosh, oh my, what? Uh, kid's never going to grow up. He's never going to change. I mean, I poured it in and then boom. 90 feet in 30 days. But before that, you got years of work. That's kind of what it takes to turn a boy into a man. So don't become weary in well-doing. Make sense? Let's pray. Thank you, Father, that you are in the business of building men. You like men. You made men. You are for men. You came up with the whole idea of a man, the whole idea of a woman, the whole idea of children. You invented this stuff. And then we wonder why life doesn't work. Well, it's because we never consult with the Creator. It's like, it's like buying a car and never looking at the owner's manual. It makes no sense. So tonight we've looked a little bit at the owner's manual. 
The truth of the matter is, we need to be connected to you, our Heavenly Father. And the only way we are connected to you is through your Son, Jesus Christ. You can take us right where we are, with all of our sin, with all of our failures, with all of our mistakes, with all of the bad stuff we have done. You already know about it, and Jesus has already died for us and paid the price. That's where it starts. What a great father you are to forgive our sins as we trust in Jesus alone. Wherever we are in the process, encourage us tonight. Make us aware that we can make a difference in the life of a young guy that's coming up. Even if we're not sure what to do, help us to reject being passive and to move ahead trusting you to lead us. It can make a huge difference. Some superior bamboo can can be cultivated if we'll just jump into the process. Help us, we pray, our Father, in Jesus' name.